How about now? There it is. Uh, Psalm 127. So we have been calling this being discipled by the Psalms of Ascent this summer, and we got through half of them, and we'll pick it up next summer. And I trust you'll remember everything I said <laughs> by the time we get there. Um, but what, what I love about uh, this series is it's connecting to all our anxieties, our fears, and really pushing us to believe what God has said he promised to do, to, to take care of us, to bless us, to keep us, to make his face shine upon us and give us his peace. And after next week, we'll, we're going to kick off our fall series looking at the Ten Commandments um, because we're heading into Deuteronomy and getting a flavor for Moses' last sermon. So I want to slow down and just meditate on, on the virtue that we're called to add to our faith. And just in the logic of how spiritual renewal works, Paul says the law is designed to lead us to Jesus. And so that, that's our goal as we look, look this fall at, at God's good words uh, in the Ten Commandments. And so with that introduction, let's read the Psalm 127 and pray and meditate on this together. This is the word of our God. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word. Uh, he has spoken to us today in love. Uh, let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you are at work in the world, um, building houses, guarding over us, growing families, building your church. And so I pray that as we meditate on this psalm here, Lord, that you would help us work by faith uh, with hearts full of gratitude, uh, able to see where you are at work and joyfully join in uh, this, this, these good tasks that you've called us to do. And so may we, may we work, may we learn to serve for King Jesus, and may those, those labors not be in vain as we seek the, the welfare, the, the shalom, the well-being of our community. So we pray this and, and ask that your will will be done among us this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So one of my favorite short stories about work is uh, a story told by uh, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, called Leaf by Niggle. And um, all right, so if I'm going to embrace my inner nerd here. All right, when Tolkien was at work constructing this one of the best-selling novels of the 20th century, right? It was a grind. Right? He was really struggling and questioning whether he would ever get through this labor of this work. I mean, he was, he was by trade, a, a language scholar, a philologist. Uh, and he used that, this is why it's such a magnificent work, he would use that in his books, constructing whole new languages and grammar rules for, for Elvish and Orkish and all these things. And so to express his frustrations with work, he wrote Leaf by Niggle. And Niggle is a great name because, I, it, especially if you're a perfectionist, to niggle is to fiddle 
or to spend your time unnecessarily on petty small details. Um, you know, my, my grandfather would say, right, you're farting around, <laughs> right? That's, that's niggling. And so Nagel in the story, he's a painter and specifically loves to paint leaves. And, and as, he, as he's a painter and trying to show something good and beautiful in the world and for his neighbors, um, he had a grand vision that started with leaf and led to this magnificent tree and became part of this countryside landscape scene with a forest and snow-capped mountains in the background. Uh, but the problem for Nagel is he had this vision. Um, he was obsessively perfectionist about the details to the point where he struggled to get anything on the canvas because the leaves weren't perfect. Right? And as well, he was a good neighbor. Uh, Nigel had what he called interruptions. Uh, in particular, one who continually interrupted him with his neighbor called Parrish, uh, who, someone who was often in need because of physical weakness and disability. So he would, he would just help them around the house and chores and gardening and, and just be a good neighbor. And looming in the background of all of his work, and especially his life's ambition, um, was what he called this wretched long journey. And in Tolkien's mind, that wretched long journey was death. Right? And so, Nigel would say, I have this long journey looming ahead of me. I have to get my painting done before the driver shows up, before I have to go. And so one night, Nigel's working hard on his painting. His neighbor comes over, interrupts him, says, my wife is sick. Can you go to the doctor in the storm? And he doesn't want to, but he goes anyway. And he falls sick and seemingly dies. And so the driver comes to take him on the journey. And this is, this is the beginning of the story. Is when the driver shows up on the door, he just says, oh, dear. He starts to weep. It's not even finished. <laughs> right? Sometime after his passing, the people who took over Niggle's house found one leaf on a crumbling canvas. And it was framed and put in the town museum called Leaf by Niggle. But it was only seen by a few. So we'll come back to his story here in a bit. That's a pretty ordinary story of everyone's work, is it not? Um, you, have, you may not be an artist by trade, but you have your ambitions, you have your job, you have your hopes, the things that you would like to accomplish in this life as you go about the hard work of constructing your life. And you, yet you're interrupted. <laughs> you have to find other things that come up, either welcome interruptions or unwelcome interruptions. Um, and they add up to like one leaf that only a few people notice after you're gone. Even if you're sacrificing sleep, as the psalmist says, to get ahead. And so the, the questions that the psalmist is going to really force us to meditate on and think about is, why am I working? What am I working for? Right? Is it all in vain? Right? Or is my life like, I mean, you've all had this experience back when computers were older and you worked on something and you forgot to save and your computer gave you that blue screen of death, Right? You just start weeping because you know it wasn't finished and you're not getting it back time back again. Right? Is that what our life's work is like? Right? Has my work made an impact? Will it last? Will I have a legacy? Um, right? Death is coming, right? that wretched long journey. And if, if you start to build a life without God, one of the things you have to recognize is that uh, the secular worldview says 
everything you do here at some point will just burn up in the grand destruction of the universe um, so that even your best deeds and the most beautiful works of art and the greatest accomplishments that you come up with as well as the brightest human minds are all just going to end with silence. Right. Now we're starting to think in terms of the wisdom aspects of the scripture and what Solomon is writing here. When he writes, unless the Lord is at work, unless the Lord is building, everyone who works themselves to the bone is laboring in vain. Right? If, if you are spending your nights not sleeping, guarding, right? the night watchman better, is better off just taking a nap if the Lord is not going to keep you safe. Uh, unless the Lord gives you the gift of children and grows your family, it doesn't matter how much you love each other and how much effort you put into it that will not open the womb and give you that heritage that children are. All of that, which is ordinary human life, will be useless. And so I think what, what the psalmist is coming after us here is it's going after that thing we hate most, which is to be told we're powerless. <laughs> To say, you cannot do this without help. You cannot do this unless the Lord is actively at work and you're joining his work. Right? And that's our default mode. I mean, we're, we have a two-year-old. I'm going to go through these stages. Right? One of the first things kids do when they can talk and, and talk back is say, no, I can do this. I don't need you. <laughs> I'd much rather be independent. And for all of us grown adults, that attitude bears fruit uh, 20 years later, right? Sleepless nights, anxious toil, terrified of failure, <laughs> overworked and underslept. And so, let's let Solomon teach us uh, what difference does it make to have the Lord uh, affect and shape and motivate your work, you know, to have the Lord in your work. Right? So that we don't work in vain. And so the, to do that, we have to start on that. This is what Solomon does, right? He, he, he sounds very much like Eeyore, but he's, he's a realist. And we have to start by meditating on the futility of work without the Lord. Right? This idea of working in vain, uh, trying to build a family in vain, trying to keep yourself, uh, spend all your energy keeping safe. In vain. What does it mean to be in vain? So it's, help, it's helpful to remember who, who the author is, right? You see the, the subscription there. This is a song of ascents. It's Solomon. And Solomon, King Solomon, in terms of achievements, was um, one of the most successful kings in Israel's history. Right? Not only did he oversee and complete the temple, God's house. I mean, he talks about in Kings, he built gardens, he collected... He had a whole zoo. He had a whole menagerie, right? He, he constructed a functional, like, Eden-like paradise in Israel as he was just using all of his God-given gifts to make something beautiful, right? And so this king who got a lot of things done in his lifetime is the one who's saying, unless the Lord is involved, all the laborers are working in vain, right? All that hard work would be pointless, so it's a good question to ask. Do you really believe that? <laughs> Does your work ethic reflect that reality? 
right? Because I, I know the way, there's, there's a couple different ways we, we tend to approach work without the Lord, right? And, and it's right there in the psalm. It's uh, anxious toil, staying up late, rising early just to go to work, where, where night and day is just consumed by your career, by what you're doing, right? Henry Ford, Henry Ford sums this up really well. This is the American dream, right? He says, I don't think a man can ever leave his business. He ought to think about it and dream of it by night. So think about it all day long, dream about it all night. Thinking men know, he, he says, that work is the salvation of the human race, physically, morally, and spiritually, socially. Because work doesn't just give us a living, right? Something we can enjoy. It's our life, right? which is a dude who would send people to factories for hours and hours, so it's a little bit self-serving, <laughs> right? But that's, that's where our lives and have go when work becomes our life. We just don't know how to turn it off. There is no separation between work and life, and that's why The Onion would write, uh, there's a great headline, the laid-back company now allows employees to work from home after 6 p.m., <laughs> right? Because we're setting up the kind of relaxed culture that we like to create here where you can work, even work from your couch at, at 2 in the morning if you want. <laughs> it, it's, not a, it's not hard to do, right, where we have this dream and all of our thoughts, our dreams, and our hopes, uh, work just starts to consume every nook and cranny of our lives and it crowds out faith, uh, it crowds out family, and it pushes away sleep. And Solomon is saying that is not how things ought to be because God gives his beloved sleep. So turn it off. Go take a nap. Okay? Trust that God is at work. All right, that's anxious toil. Right, so the question is, what are you, what are you working for? What, what are you trying to accomplish? And in light of if the Lord is not in it, it's vain, why are you putting so much energy into this thing? that you don't know if it'll last without the Lord. Right. So there's several other ways we, we get work, our relationship with work uh, messed up. Uh, some of us take the opposite uh, error, that be, if the Lord is involved, that means I can just be lazy. <laughs> uh, that, you know, the Lord will do the work. And so, you know, my line of work, it would be, well, the Lord changes mind, so I don't have to do any preparation for my sermon. I'll just wing it. Let the Holy Spirit do all the work. Um, right? you know, the, historically, the church has called the, the attitude of not working hard um, sloth. It's one of the seven deadly sins. Right? So being lazy, just wait for God to provide. Right? Instead of being like the ants who prepare for winter, you just sit there and expect things to land on your doorstep. Right? Knowing our congregation, I don't really see that a whole lot, but but it is a temptation to be lazy, to not work as hard, or to not know why you are working, which is the heart of what sloth is about. Right? So, well, here's, here's one example from the scriptures. Uh, Paul in Thessalonians is writing to this young church, and he says, We hear that some among you walk in idleness. You're not busy at work, right? But you're busybodies. <laughs> you're not working to put food on the table but you're just running around making all kinds of work for other people. And so Paul says, you know, 
here's how the gospel changes things. When we showed up among you, we loved you enough to not ask you to support us financially. We could have done that. But to give you an example, we worked night and day so we wouldn't be a burden on you, so we could pay for our bread and pay you for our bread. And so he writes to this church and says, therefore, get to work. Do your work as if you're serving Jesus. And if, if they refuse to work, then withdraw from them so they get the message. All right. That's sloth, right, of being so passive where you don't ever fully engage in the work that God is up to and the things that God cares about. Um, I mean, that's, that's what Dorothy Sayers talks about, and she says so well, that sloth is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, doesn't try to know anything, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing and remains alive because there's nothing to die for. Right? You don't have purpose. That's sloth. Right? You can be really busy, but don't know why you're busy and what you're busy for. Right? Or as I was doing my sermon prep, one of the commercials came up <laughs> over and over again. And I think it was for some kind of insurance, but the insurance is supposed to set you free so that you can do what you love. Right? That's what matters most in life, doing what you love. And what, what Solomon is going after, and he has the audacity to say, right, it doesn't matter how much you work, uh, or just being busy for no reason, or doing what you love to the point where you enjoy your work. If you don't have the Lord doesn't matter if you're niggling right? or spending a lifetime doing what you love. If you don't have the Lord, it's all in vain. Right? It's pretty depressing. <laughs> you start to think about it. It's really, he's really blunt. He's, he's pushing us. Right? I can give you a more elaborate and uh, explicit uh, description of this from, from also from King Solomon. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And, and remember, right? Solomon is someone who had the, what we would call the wealth of Jeff Bezos from Amazon. He had the, the building power and creativity of like an Elon Musk. He also collected wives and girlfriends like Hugh Hefner, right? He, he had lots of money, lots of power, lots of influence. Could argue, right, he had every human experience that you should say he should be happy. And yet he wrote in Cle Ecclesiastes and says, without God, all of that is just pff, a vapor. And he says in chapter 2, verse 18, I hated all my toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet this guy will be the master of all that I toiled and used my wisdom for under the sun. This is vanity. <laughs> right, so here's where he's pushing this vain thing. I don't know if the one who benefits from my lifetime achievements will use them well, or we would say blow them on a bender in Vegas and just waste away my skills, talents, time, and money. It's, what a waste. Right? Someone else gets my stuff and all the benefits of my hard work. And then it keeps going in verse 20 where he says, So I turned and gave my heart over to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, 
Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did no work for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. And so what has a human being have for all the toil, all the striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? And here's the description. All his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even at night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Sounds like work. (laughs) Causes frustration to the point where you can't turn off your brain at night. And if you don't have God in the work, all of that stress is meaningless. All right. So all the shed tears, the lost sleep, the ulcers, the days you barely survive, someone else is going to get the fruit of that labor. Unless the Lord is at work. This is, this is the description that, that Solomon gives here in the Psalms, and it's really explicitly for chapters and chapters in Ecclesiastes to say this is life outside of Eden without any hope of getting back to Eden, without any hope of life after death. Right? This is life in a fallen world. It is toil. It hurts. It's frustrating. Right? You can be doing a good thing, putting food on the table for your family and, and struggle. Right? And you get to the end and say, what was all that for? And so, Psalm 127 is saying, okay, if we live in God's house, what difference does it make to have the Lord? Right? That's the alternative here as you flip 127 around. If the Lord builds a house, you're not working in vain. And so this is point number two. Look at what it says about God's work. And this is where it's really encouraging. Right? It's not all negative. <laughs> Feels negative if you get all your identity and sense of worth from our work, but it calls, it's calling into question why we do what to do, we do. But it also is saying, look at what God is up to in the world. He's working. The God that you worship is a God who works. Right? He's building houses. He's, he's protecting, he's guarding, guarding the city, he's growing families. Children are a heritage from the Lord, it's gift language. Um, I mean, it's really tempting to say, ah, life would be so much better if I had no work to do at all. But the very first thing you're confronted with in the Bible, the first thing you learn about God, is that in the beginning, God created. In the beginning, God worked. And then he created humans in his image, male and female, and it says he put them in the garden to work and to serve. So work isn't evil. It's our relationship with work that goes askew. Right? And so you start to meditate on, God, on, on God's character, and you start to realize that when you read the Bible and, and Solomon is tapping into this big storyline, right? it's one big long testimony of, what, of the work that God is up to beginning with creation, continuing with redemption, to setting his affection on individuals and showing them Jesus. And in the grand scheme of things, going from, from tears to that tearless day at the end of all things. But it's all a testimony of God's work. Right? Redemption. Read the catechisms. Right? This justification is a one-time work, <laughs> an act of God's free grace. Sanctification is an ongoing work of God's free grace, right? Redemption is described as something God does. God the Father, 
sent Jesus. Jesus worked to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died, um, to forgive our sins, to achieve a perfect righteousness for us. Right? That's God's work for us. Uh, providence. Right? Just the fact that you take a breath every single moment in Jesus, Jesus is holding all things together by the very word of his power. Right? In, in him we live and move and have our being. Every single moment is evidence of God's work. And right now, through his providence, he's working out his plan to renew all things through Jesus, working even, as we, we said in our confession of faith, even weaving our sins and sorrows into his plans to work out all things for good of those who love him. Not the, the Holy Spirit, right? Not only is giving breath and life, um, he's the one who gives skills and talents and, and just makes this world a good place to live and you'll find your neighbors who are still able to do good things. He's also at work leading people to Jesus, <laughs> showing them their sin, showing them hope that God will forgive and accept you as perfect in him. And say, judgment is coming and you're going to long for that day when Jesus comes. That's the work of the Spirit. Right? And Psalm 127 says, the Lord is even at work in your own, in the construction of your home. Your house, your children, your city, your community, keeping you safe. Right? Which makes sense in, in the storyline of the Bible. It begins with, I've created you in my image. Now go be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so God is at work growing families. Families are a good thing. Children are something to be celebrated. I mean, they're called a reward here. It's one of the benefits of having God on your side according to the covenant in the Old Testament. Right? If you keep covenant, if you repent, you believe, you, you follow the Lord and, and keep his ways, right? That's Deuteronomy 28. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God, you'll be blessed in your community, you'll be blessed in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, right, children. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, including the fruit of your womb. And it keeps going, right? Children are a blessing. And God's even at work there. And so, all that to say, does your work line up with God's work? Right? You could start with Psalm 127 and, and, and our view of children. Right? Children are signs of being blessed by the Lord. Blessed is the man who has a quiverful. <laughs> right? Do you have that kind of view of children that they, they are a blessing? Right? Derek Kidner is really funny. He says, you know, your, your kids may first be a handful before they become a quiverful. <laughs> right? It's a lot of work before they become helpful. Um, because that's, it's, it's work. God gives you a child, but it doesn't mean the work stops. No, you, you got to do the hard work of parenting and training them and teaching them and not only how to be human, but then also how, who is Jesus and how do you follow him, right? But it's going to make you weird in our world. If you have that positive view of children in a secular culture in which we live, right? The, the evidence is out there. You can just Google it. The more secular you become, the less religious you become, the less children you have because work 
tends to replace children and you don't have time and it becomes harder and more less attractive to want to sacrifice to have lots of kids. Meaning the more emphasis a culture puts on joy and work right now, the less willing they are to engage in that good hard work of raising children. It seems to be what's happening as people are having less and less children in our culture in Europe. Something to meditate on. (laughs) Raising children is good work. It doesn't say how many to have, it just says uh, be fruitful and multiply. Um, right, second part here of the, what the work God is up to. God uses children. This is um, verses 4 and 5. God uses children as a part of his plan to battle evil in the world. Think about that. Right, like arrows in a warrior's hand are the children of one's youth. You will not be put to shame when you speak with your enemies at the gate. <laughs> right, so just... Just meditate on this for a second. God is saying children are a blessing. More humans is a good thing. When the second page of the Bible includes humans making a train wreck of God's good creation and the first, first natural-born human, <laughs> Cain, kill, kills his brother. Right? And then they, humans do that work of filling the earth with selfish humans who give birth to more selfish humans and And the testimony of the scripture is we're continually polluting God's good world. And yet, even here, God is able to say, children are a sign of my blessing to the point that they will have your back when enemies show up at your gate. They're part of my plan to keep you safe (laughs) and to protect you from evil. We don't have that reality. We don't have city gates where armies are going to camp out and, and you need to grab your sons and your swords and go defend your family per se, but, but the assumption is children are a part of God's plan to push back against evil. Right? It's in the Bible. It's part of the context, right? It's assuming your children are going to grow up. They're going to be discipled, and they're going to have the faith and courage and, and virtue to join in that good work, the desire to do it themselves. But the idea is God is at work building houses, growing families, providing future security, even through children, which is counterintuitive, is it not? We don't look at a little baby and say, you're going to keep me safe someday. You're going you're gonna to have my back. I'm going to need you to serve me. All right. And so, if God is at work, working to build homes, provide security, and grow families, do his values line up with your values? Right. How do you get in on that reality where your work is not in vain? And this is how we'll, we'll close. Because right. po- we want to get to the point where we can live out verse 3. Right. Where right, you're, give, you're given the gift of sleep because you know you are beloved. Right. I mean, that's the promise. Uh, that you can work hard because God's grace doesn't make us passive. You can work hard knowing that the Lord is at work because you are God's beloved and trust that he is at work in the world for you. That's the idea. So take a second, but 
Verse 3 has the gospel packed into it. Right? This is how you get in on the Lord's work. Right? It'll show us how to get rest. So the word for beloved in verse 3 is the name, the Hebrew name, Jedidiah. Right? And so who, this is for all you Bible nerds. Who, who else, who do you know was named Jedidiah in the scriptures? This is really obscure trivia. This is why I always lost to my dad in that Bible trivia game. <laughs> Solomon. Right? Solomon was the name given to him by God. And if you know Solomon's story, over and over again, right, it's, not only do you have him as a successful figure, but he has all kinds of shame surrounding his birth. Right? He's the son of David through the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Bathsheba was, was his mom's name. But the scriptures repeatedly point, don't use her name first. They, they want to remind you that Solomon's, Solomon is the fruit of David's sin. Right? And so this is from the famous story when David let sloth creep into the city gates. He stopped going to work. It literally says it was spring. It was the time when kings go out to battle. But David the king, where is he? He stays home in Jerusalem and he goes out to the roof and, he, and behold, a beautiful woman bathing catches his eye. And it says, he saw she was very beautiful, echoing the language of Genesis 3. And he took her and she gets pregnant. And then he tries to hide his shame. He calls Uriah back from battle and says, hey buddy, go home. Have a good night. Go say hi to your wife. Uriah refused good, good food and the comfort of his wife. He slept on the doorstep. He said, I know my men are, are roughing it. They're dying on the battlefield. He's an honorable man. And so the fruit of that is David terrified to have his sin be found out. So he sends Uriah to the front lines of battle with a note to the commander and says, put him in the place that's the most dangerous and have the soldiers withdraw. And so Uriah... And the grand story is who is David's friend, who's eaten a meal with David, which is also a sign of friendship, is left to die alone at the hand of his enemies. And so David then, after an appropriate time of grieving, takes Bathsheba to be his wife. This child of the affair is born, and part of God's judgment is this child doesn't live. Solomon is the next child. Right? The child God gives to David and the wife of Uriah. They name her, him Solomon, but God names him Beloved, Jedediah. Sends Nathan, the prophet, to say, here's his name. Right? And so here's God's gift to David, to a human being. And God's work is to give him a good gift in the aftermath of all kinds of horrific evil. Right. Gave him a son called Beloved. And what the psalm, I think, is doing here and wants us to, to meditate on is that's the story of every human being. <laughs> we've blown it with our work. We Not only do we work for the wrong reasons, but we've taken things that we thought were beautiful and turned out to make a train wreck of our lives. We have guilt. We have shame. And what, what the psalmist says is you too can be called Beloved and you too can sleep. He gives to his beloved sleep, Jedediah. 
you can rest. It's rest for the overworked and the sleepless. And that's only possible if grace is true. If God's work is not just creation, it's not just constructing this beautiful world and undoing all the sad things, but also doing the good work of redeeming our bad works. Right? And that's only possible because of what of the beloved son, Jesus, the, the great descendant of Solomon. Right? I mean, that's, that's how we get Jesus. As David says to, to God in 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to do this great work for you. I'm going to build you this magnificent house. And God says, no, that's cute. <laughs> it's very honorable. I'm going to build you a house. And that house will be my house. And it's going to be a family, a king, a son. And that son will sit on the throne of the earth forever. And my love, my steadfast love, will never leave him. And we know now, because of the New Testament, that that's Jesus. He's the beloved one. And when, you, and when you read the accounts of Jesus, it's constantly stories of him being at work. Right? Read the Gospel of John. And Jesus describes himself this way. The Son can do nothing of his own accord. Right? This is the divine Son of God. I can't do anything by myself, but I only do what I see my Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son also does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. God's going to do great things through me and you're going to be, your minds are going to be blown. And then Jesus goes on to say, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom whoever he wills. See, what, what Jesus is testifying to is the work of the gospel that's calling us to rest in today, that God the Father sent God the Son in partnership with God the Spirit who, tap, who helps you tap into that experience of being the beloved Son. They're working to give you rest, to give you sleep. Right? So you stop chewing on those things, those, those guilty fears that keep you up at night. All to bring you into the very same infinite, bottomless love that, that God the Father has for God the Son, so that you and I might be called beloved. Right? And the way we become beloved is because Jesus experienced the vanity of life under the sun. Right? Put yourself in Jesus' shoes to the, to the extent that we're able as fallen creatures. Right? He lived the perfect life. He can poured out his heart, his mind, his soul three years into these disciples. I mean, the way the Gospel of John talks, it sounds like he pretty much eliminated sadness and sickness in, in that part of uh, that small corner of the land where you can see, like, here's a taste of what the future will be. And what did that get him at the end of his life? An unjust death on a cross. Right? Death of the beloved son in our place. Right, he got to watch those friends he loved betray him, deny him. Leave him alone. And he willingly did that work <laughs> so that you and I could be adopted as beloved in Christ and be then partners with him, or a better term is servants in the New Testament, to go 
work for him. And so to the extent that reality invades your heart, that changes how you work. You say, I can't believe the Lord loves me. And he's promised to give me everything I need to do the good works he's called me to do. So I can rest as I go to work, knowing that he is at work through me. That is just as true of your salvation as it is your career. You can work out your salvation with fear and trembling, fully confident knowing that God is at work to finish the good work he began in you and he will bring it to completion. And you can go to work raising your family, (laughs) building a home, trusting that he will provide. He will graciously give you all things. And if not in this life, you'll have work that endures in the next. That's That's how we... We find out about the joy of work from Niggle, and this is, this is where I'll leave us. Right? In Niggle, we left him mourning how little he got done in his life. One leaf barely noticed. Well, in the story, he finds himself having to go do hard labor, and he, he gets out, and he's given what's called gentle treatment, and there's, there's mysteries about it. It's, it's, it's an artist trying to tell a story. It sounds like he's going through Judgment Day. And he's given the gift of going out into the countryside. Right? He gets the, what's called the gentle treatment. But as he's riding on the train, it drops him off on a station right in front of his bicycle with his name on it. So it's very personal. And he rides his bicycle down the path. And as he's riding the bicycle, he ri- pedaling along, all of a sudden he falls off his bicycle stunned because he sees the leaf that he drew. Right? This is the portrait of the afterlife, the new creation. Right? And he, he says, before him actually stood this whole tree, his tree, that was finished. Right? And it wasn't the, the leaf and the tree that he tried to work on. It was the leaf and tree as he imagined it actually finished. Right? And so when he saw it, he lifted his arms and opened wide and said, look, this is a gift. And all the leaves he had ever labored over were there, not as he imagined them, not as he actually made them. See, what, what Niggle is discovering and what Tolkien is pointing, everyone who reads that story, is to the joy of resurrection and the meaning that gives your work. Right? Where all your good works done in Christ that we do imperfectly in this life will somehow be greater than we can imagine in the next and they will endure. Right? That God's work done through our work will build permanent houses. Right? Doesn't, gives you meaning. Gives you hope. It sets you free as God's beloved to say, okay, God is at work in me. I'm going to go take a nap. I can rest. <laughs> Thank God for grace. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, we, th- we thank you for this gift of Jesus and, and the gift of our work that you are at work in our lives. And I, I pray that you would help make us wise as we go to work this week, that we would work as we are serving our Lord Jesus Christ who first loved us. And that you would give us great hope that as we pour ourselves out and we don't see fruit right away, we can trust that even if we don't see it here in this life, you promise to, to bless and reward those who, who work faithfully here in this life by grace and grace alone. So I pray for Hope Church, Lord, that, that we would be willing to participate in the great work you're doing, which is growing the church, growing your family, and making Christ known.
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.